Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fe- The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society being fueled by food, drink, and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. This talk was hosted in collaboration with Grant Gibson at Oxo Tower Wharf as part of the Material Matters Design Fair, South Bank, London. Hello everyone, thanks for being here. My name's Claire Dowdy and um, I'm the chair. Um, so the discussion today is around sort of crossing over disciplines. Um, I'll just read this. It, the Eames did it. Mies did it. Even architecturally educated fleas did it. Let's do it. Let's design a chair. Somebody's in the wrong job, Rob, who wrote that. Um, or perhaps not. So, yes, we, we, we'll, we will go into chairs quite a bit because I'm a bit fixated about chairs. Um, but we've got three people here who come at sort of cross-discipline and working across design, architecture, furniture, um, who will all have very strong opinions. Um, we've got um, Adam Nathaniel Furman, who trained as an architect, worked for Rem Coolhouse, Terry Farrell. He's, he's older than he looks, so, so he's, he's done an awful lot. Um, uh, now runs his own business and has a book out called Queer Spaces. That's not the first book that will be mentioned this evening, uh, this afternoon, by the way. Um, and he crosses, when it, well, whatever he's doing, generally quite a lot of colour is involved. Would you agree, Adam? That's a fair... Normally. Normally, yeah. Okay. Um, Naomi Cleaver is a designer and broadcaster uh, and author. Naomi has a book out at the moment called All Together Now, which is about the co-living, co-working revolution, um, co-written with Amy Frearson. Um, and Naomi's done an awful lot of uh, interiors projects, particularly around student housing and the build-to-rent sector. So what Naomi knows about chairs is volume. You know, she's, she's buying a lot of chairs at once. So that's, that's quite interesting for us probably quite a good person to know. Um, and then we have Nigel Coates, who's come in from Italy for us. Um, I don't, well, I'm not sure if I need to go into... Land of design. Land of design, yes, exactly. Um, designing for all sorts of people, Alessi, Alessi, so it goes on, work in the V&A and frac in Orléans, and um, was at the Royal College of Art, head of, head of architecture, and now you are at the London School of Architecture sometimes, okay. So we've got some really good, good brains up here, people with lots of great experience. Um, I'm going to turn to you first. Oh, sorry, and Nigel has a book out, which is a memoir, and Nigel's book is called Live Lives in Architecture through the RIBA. And as we are talking about books, I'm now going to say that I've got a book out. 
and I was clever <laughs> to bring mine. But I'm, I'm the sort of, I did the donkey work, so my name is just at the very bottom, but it is on the front cover, and that's about London-based manufacturing businesses. Anyway, um, right, but back, back to the proper um, subject for the day. Adam, let's start with you. Obviously, they've been people who are cross-discipline for donkeys' years. I mean, me's obviously got, got a mention in, in, in um, Rob's intro, um, but we could go on Geoponte. Uh, uh, the list goes on. Do you see yourself as a polymath in that way? You started with architecture. So many of them started with architecture. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't use the word polymath, but I think architects inherently in their training are taught to sort of feel like they can put their hands to many different jobs and many different scales and many different materials, sort of, you know, experts in nothing but dabbling in everything, in a way. So I think there is something in architectural training that does imply that, you know, we are able to have fun in lots of different parallel fields. Um, so I, I would see myself in that tradition if only I actually did buildings, which I don't. So <laughs> you know, and all of those people <laughs> were primarily architects, and that's very much not something that that I do. So I think it's more to do with the education. Um, yeah, so so many of them are uh, architecture graduates, um, but you you didn't go into buildings particularly. Was that was that a conscious decision, or did that just you just went with the flow? Um, I, I I mean I wanted to like so I so I went and you know worked in various practices and I was teaching and um, but I think. I, I mean, I wasn't able to, I tried. So it's just sort of a kind of certain amount of failure there. <laughs> sort of, and, and ended up working in fields that were a bit more welcoming to, I guess, somebody who wasn't, uh, or had, had an aesthetic sensibility that was uh, not really able to conform with what designers and architects were doing, or architects were doing at the time. Um, so, like, I had friends who got together in, in collectives and, you know, did made their own commissions and did buildings themselves because I'm the 2008 graduate generation that sort of went out into an environment where there wasn't really a lot of work. So some people made their own, but like I couldn't find anyone from my peers who wanted to do similar kind of work. So, you know, not for want of trying um, and ended up sort of doing other things. Okay. So, Naomi, you're, as an interior designer and finding yourself in this niche world, rather interesting niche world of student accommodation and build to rent. As I said, you're, you're um, specifying thousands of chairs at a time. Um, does it bother you who's designed that chair? Could it be someone who's gone through a specific furniture design degree or an architect? W where does that sit on your list of priorities? It's completely irrelevant what we're looking for. What I'm looking for is just good design, quality design, good form, good functionality, at a good price. You know, we are buying in volume typically on projects that I'm working on. So we'll buy, as you were saying, you know, 4,000 chairs at a time. Um, and obviously budget is going to be a consideration, but at the same time, I'm the, you know, I'm the gatekeeper of, of quality and design on that particular project that I'm working on. So I'm looking for a well-designed chair, but as to who designed it, I really couldn't care less. You know, and it might be an emerging young designer who I've never heard of, who's going to be a great star of the future, or it might be a, a great star now um, who have who's designed beautiful chairs, but they've got to be cost-effective. That's you know, otherwise we can't afford to buy them. And when you say cost-effective, what what's that based on? Something to do with rent? <laughs> 
<laughs> good hint there, Claire. Yes, so, so I'd worked as an interior designer for many, many years, and then I ended up working in student accommodation, and um, uh, which was great, um, a wonderful, wonderful experience. But what I was really uh, struck by was the budgets that are applied onto these projects. So a rule of thumb, and this may come as a big shock to everyone here, it certainly was to me, a rule of thumb is that the budget for the entire suite of furniture in a student accommodation apartment is equivalent to one month's rent. So if you think that one month's rent, let's say even at the top of the market here in London, is maybe £3,000 a month, that's going to be your budget for all of the furniture in that apartment. So that's... That, does that mean you buy stuff in China? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> it's quite, quite possibly. Yeah, where the quite possibly. <laughs> you know, China, Eastern Europe, um, all sorts of places. I mean, obviously, I say, as the design and quality guardian, we want to buy in, in the UK, but if we can't afford to buy in the UK, um, then we can't, and that project just won't happen. So when you say that that price... So two or three thousand, three thousand pounds a month's rent is it, then that's what you've got to spend on. How that's how a rule of thumb. As a rule that, of thumb. That's a kind of coincidental. Okay, kind of but that that's for a for how many rooms are you doing up on that money? Um, we even apply that on built to rent actually. So that would be like one or two bedrooms and a living room and kitchen, dining room. Okay. So everything. I mean, a really wow. remarkable amount of stuff. Yeah, but you've got the volume, so you've got economy of scale as well. Yeah. Okay, fine. So, Nigel, you also trained as an architect, but ended up very quickly with your first interiors project, and ended up designing furniture in Japan. So, it was sort of by accident. Do you want to just explain how that happened? I went, like Adam, I went to the Architectural Association which was probably even wilder uh, when I went to school there. It was, it was a sort of, um, uh, it was a kind of happening, continuous happening, in which architecture was sort of drifted in and out of the subject matter. So you were going to get an RIBA part two at the end of it, but whether you drew a building or not was sort of kind of uh, depending what you could get away with. And... Uh, <coughs> It was a sort of, uh, as Adam said, a broader culture, and I would, I, I, I guess, uh, the the my aspiration was formed then, because Casabella magazine, with the radical the issue of uh, the, the radical architects in Italy, was left on the doorstep, a big box of these magazines at the AA, and we all devoured it and thought, well, actually. Architecture can be about ideas. It's about culture. It's about kind of um, setting an agenda yourself. So although I was kind of very into physical things, I was also into architecture as an idea or many ideas. And so that prepares you for pretty much everything, doesn't it? So how did this furniture come along on the first, uh, well, the on, first on the furniture restaurant job? Well, before that, we had this radical group that came out of the AA, which um, Narrative Architecture Today, NATO, of which I was the t 
teacher. I was the kind of parent of that thing. And we made furniture out of old bits of cars. And one of the NATO group, um, uh, Mark Prizman, taught Tom Dixon to weld. So it goes way back to the beginning of all that stuff, the sort of design boom in London, where we were making things out of whatever we could find, sometimes in the street, sometimes in a, off a building site, whatever. What could we do with this? And then um, I got a, suddenly got a job in Japan, which I'd never been to, and that was just because of publication. The sort of power of magazines took me there. And when we were designing this restaurant in an old garage, which was a suitable site because it was double height space and they wanted something grand, they said, what are we going to do for chairs? So I just did a sketch and said, what about something like this? And they said, okay, we'll make it. So I had to draw them properly, or my team, you know, we just suddenly I'm um, doing chairs. No cost, no object, by the way. And <laughs> I never got involved in the cost. But it was the fact that the chair, you had to sit on it. It was for a restaurant, it had to be comfortable. It had to work with being pushed and pulled around every single night. It had to be turned and put on the table for to be the restaurant to be swept out. And the Japanese company called Rockstone made the, the, all the furniture for this restaurant, and I got my first license agreement and some money in my pocket. So that was pretty good. So not only did we have an architecture job, we also had a line of furniture after a year. <laughs> Great stuff. But so, so that you fell into that a little bit, but, but totally. you're, but you're really training... I'm a believer in just letting things happen when you're about to just sort of, you know, you think everything's kind of plodding along and then suddenly something mm. comes from left field. And if you don't notice it, that's okay. But if you do and you think, oh, that seems right, uh, rather attractive, I go, I'll go with that. So we're kind of saying here that um, architecture training is great training for other things, interior and design, always furniture. And, and, and always was thus. Do you feel the same, Adam, as when you look back at your architecture training? Do you think of it as the mother culture? No, I wouldn't say mother culture. I mean, it just gives you a lot of skills. There's a lot of problems with it as well. But a lot it just of problems with it. Yeah, but say? we don't need to go into that now. It's like don't that, we? That there's, no, there's a lot of structural issues with architectural education, but it gives you a lot of skills. Okay. You know, all, the, all the things that it does, it gives you a lot of skills uh, and booze. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Okay, no. Pointing out that none of us have got Negronis up here. Um, I think we deserve them, don't we? Negronis, please. I know it's the afternoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> Clearly. I would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but not, not for me. Not for me. Not, not for. <laughs> I do. Yes, please. Um, sorry, but it gives you a lot of skills. Right. So you, you you learn kind of so many skill sets and so many. Well, nowadays so so much software, but in the past also, you know, like workshop skills, material working skills, um, that you can kind of turn your hand to lots of different things. Um, whereas if you're studying graphic design or something, you, you have a much, you have a more specific set of softwares, you know, skill sets with color that you learn. Architecture, it's much broader, that's all. Right, and there are a lot of architects. I mean, Norman Foster's um, design chairs, pr pretty, 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 well, good number. Can I just interject, isn't it the fact that a d designing a chair is like architecture in miniature, you've just got so much more control? Do you no. feel like that, designers of chairs? A, the, the, chair the, 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 the control that Name is suggesting? 
It's partly that, but it's the it's it's also the fact that it can be an it 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 can concentrate an idea, an idea about structure, form, and the u unity with the body. That's kind of it's the for me a chair is a kind of partner to our body. Like we're sitting on these chairs now that have nothing special, <laughs> but still they're but chairs and they've been thought about, <laughs> <laughs> and they've. <laughs> They, they, my, my body feels okay on this chair. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of intellectually speaking, they're, they're, there's a partnership yeah. available, which is different, more specific yeah. than with a building. It's like you know, chairs and beds. They're like the most intimate part of architectural or in, intimate expression of architecture because you're actually yes. up against it. So you can make something that has kind of cons it's like essential. Right. In a chair, that a building is much more complicated because the choreography of a building is so complex. Do you feel the same, Adam? You're sort of nodding, but looking a bit questioning there. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I guess for me, there's a kind of prioritization of, of chairs, which, and this is entirely a personal perspective, but it's kind of intertwined with quite a lot of misogyny in, in architecture and design over the past hundred years, where certain things are gendered as being more masculine um, and being seen as better examples of design because they are structural, because they are small buildings, because they are like little pieces of engineering. And f uh, chairs were very much sort of imbued with that sense of masculine superiority. What about French furniture? What about in the, at Versailles? They're not masculine necessarily. They were made for the ladies as well. I was just about to say about from the Bauhaus onwards, but it's okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> So does that link in a way back to the sort of big name male architects yes. that one associates perhaps with, with design? Yeah, so for instance, textiles are just as important, but they're always um, sort of poo-pooed and sort mm. of not what really treated. What about Eileen Gray and Charlotte Perriot? I mean, there's plenty of women who design chairs. Yeah, but it's not about women designing chairs. It's the way that the chair is kind of prioritised as this structural object. So it's gendered as being something which is better than textiles, which is better than a bed, which was never, would never be seen in exactly the same way. Really? But then society at large has gendered, you know, the streets had m men's names. It's, it's that right? part of the culture, isn't it? It's like we live in an imperial city that celebrates soldiers and men and military power. So, you know, that's true across scale, surely. I mean, perhaps there's an argument that we, um, well... We've got a few, I mean, look, look around the room. We've got quite a lot of different chairs already, haven't we, uh, in the world? And if you Google how many chairs go to landfill, it's, a, well, I mean, I don't know if it's right. Um, I don't know if anyone's really counted. But uh, in America, um, it said on Google that 16.5 uh, million chairs went to landfill a year. Uh, that was businesses throwing chairs away. And American consumers, it was 12 million a year. Well, I they do break. Well, perhaps somebody should design a chair that doesn't break, and then we can get rid of all the chairs that, <laughs> that do break, and we can stop talking about chairs and talking about, talk about beds, for example. But it, it, that also comes back to, I guess, the question of who designed them and where do they come from, um, which I understand the sort of bottom line, which is very important. And I guess you work to your remit. But, you know, for me, it is really, really important to work with people who make furniture 
in a way that is fulfilling for their lives with materials that we know where they come from. Um, How do you manage that in this sort of cost-effective world? Easy, well, it's easy when, when you're very unsuccessful like me, because <laughs> I just work with very small people. But like, I've, I've teamed up with small manufacturers mostly. So, um, for instance, Miral in, in Glasgow, who invented a new surface material, sort of developing furniture with them, uh, working with Bait, which is a, co a female-led collective in, in Beirut, who um, uh, sort of got about 60 makers um, around Lebanon, um, and they bring in uh, foreign currency, um, and the designs are made with those makers with materials and skill sets, which are kept alive from the designs being sold internationally. Um, so I just I'm lucky enough to work with. Yeah, I think I think it's much easier on a smaller scale to control provenance, and I've been involved in lots of small scale stuff where the provenance is explicit. Obviously, when you get to the larger scale, provenance isn't explicit, and I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done um, on that larger scale to know where stuff is coming from, how it's being made, how it's being shipped over, what, how it's being looked after. As you were saying, Claire, you know, it must be perfectly possible to repair chairs rather than just chuck them out. But then you have an element of fashion when it comes to furniture as well and trends, not that I support that at all, but inevitably that does exist. So... Um, uh, in the investment world, so a lot of my clients are major um, investors, um, there's this thing called ESG, which is environment, social and government, you know, uh, sensitivity, I suppose. A lot of it is, um, I think, probably just social washing, but <laughs> unfortunately, but people have made a start and there are conversations going on, but yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. There's a massive, massive amount of work to be done about... Um, provenance and scale, or you've on got, provenance You've got and to scale. balance all of that with, you know, despite the restrictions on cost, you're trying to make comfortable uh, environments with some degree of empathy for the people who are going to live in there, and that's a tough job. And I, you know, th we might be talking. Th there's no better whether the, a piece of furniture is a manifesto piece like I do. Or, or a Chinese chair from a restaurant. You know, there's ones with sort of square section metal bent with a bit of velvet on. I mean, I like those because they're so kind of crude and ordinary. You could use those and you could save money by buying those. <laughs> with the plastic garden ones. But we're all trying to balance, you know, we're all contributing and we're all trying to balance a whole load of factors, whether they're issues of, sec of, 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 of gendered gendering or truth in materials or, or the, sh the importance of an idea. They're all, we're all kind of full of conflict. Yeah, and I, I also think, you know, my, my career has always been about, or I've tried to sort of bring polarities together. You know, I've always thought architects, designers, builders, we're all doing the same thing. So let's not fall into those rather cliche traps of, not respecting each other perhaps as much as we should. You know, you certainly see that on building sites or have I have done over the years. It's very adversarial, isn't it? That it's very adversarial. But you're you're yeah. working with contractors and you're ba they're basically waiting, you're waiting for them to trick you. Yeah, and, and vice versa, you know, and, and really it should be, <laughs> it's a collaboration and, it, and it's really foolish and naive to think it's not a collaboration and it's also um, naive to think that design isn't commerce. Design is commerce, and, and we, it behoves us to produce a product that can sell and sustain as well. So with, with the 
people here who have uh, crossed various disciplines successfully, very successfully. Um, I wonder if that, if you look the other side of that, if, if you see an architect who is only designing buildings, do you feel they've failed a bit? And, oh dear, they can only design buildings, you know, I can do and various other people um, can do lots of other things and they've just stuck in their little box, let, probably that let, they designed. Let's face the fact that in Britain, there's a whole different culture than there is in continental Europe and particularly in Italy. So there are many architects, Ettore Sozza, Stefano Giovannoni, a lot of the big names in Italy started out as architects, but they, they, they drifted towards design and found that they, they got take up and there was a conversation. And whether the conversation was about the meaning or the semiology of buildings or objects didn't really matter to them. But in England, there's a, it's more honed commercially. So the architects do the building, somebody else does the interiors, and someone else does the furniture. So, so say in Tate Modern, Jasper Morrison did all the furniture in Tate Modern. That's a big commission. And he had sort of cultivated this sort of, this uh, 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 pared down aesthetic which appealed to the curators because it doesn't interfere with the art. So, you know, that's just an, a, an example of the, of the divisions that are at work in Britain. And I think they're kind of counterproductive to the point that, you know, that, that Zaha Hadid practice, say, might do the building and they'll say, actually, we'll do the interiors as well. And then they've got a lamp that they want to sell, the lamp that I did with Zaha, for example, for the Italian company. So they've got, can cross all those, but that's really rare. Is it, is it the bigger practices, because you know Richard Rodgers has got it as well, Norman Foster, and then um, on Wednesday night, sitting up here actually for Material Matters, there was the product development director of Snehetta, sorry, I've forgotten his title now, and they, they have a, a sort of furniture art product design arm as well. So do you have to get to a certain size in order to become cross-disciplinary? No, There's somebody has to recognize that you might do a good piece of furniture. Or do you just have to be quite pushy? So when you're, you know, get, get that original job, butter up the client and say you'd also like to do the door handles and take it from there. I, I, <laughs> I, I do think that you've got a point there that once you reach, I think maybe some architects aren't that interested in it initially and then you reach a certain point and your business development team tell you actually we should have a department which can take this much profit from these projects if we also do, you know, specifications that are our pieces. So there's probably a certain scale where it makes business sense to branch out into those areas. I mean, Zaha was obviously brilliant at design, but maybe some other practices aren't, but it makes business sense. But uh, she was designing extremely expensive yeah, marble right. tables or tables out of solid perspex that cost kind of three million <laughs> quid. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were sort of pieces of sculpture, uh, weren't they? But a lot of producers, a lot of Italian producers work with architects who they think they're going to flog all their product into that architect's projects. And does that happen? It's a business proposition. It does happen, mm. and they do it quite deliberately. I mean, why are there so many Italian furniture showrooms in London? Because they're hoping to sell to all these architects who are madly specifying all this stuff. I, 
I do also feel like in Italy there is a, a slightly uncomfortable, um, and I think <laughs> maybe I won't go there because there the response was a bit negative, but there is a particular way of looking up to architects, which I think is not necessarily terribly healthy, where they're seen as being above um, the other design well, that is on, on my list of issues, actually, whether the, because of the sort of pecking order of the design world, um, a, a big name architect is, is very much top of the tree and... Um, Here as well, would you say? Uh, well, I, I, that's a question for, for, for the panel, whether they feel that's also the case, that, that they then get to... Yeah, but there are architects who design shitty furniture. <laughs> Who, who well. are you thinking of, you Nigel? Uh, well, have we got any furniture from Richard Rogers' practice? Okay, maybe they've done a few things, but I they I haven't really. Yeah. Maybe, and of course, the, the Norman Foster did the Nemo table fairly early on. It's okay, and it's still going. And they've got a Nemo department at the practice, but it just depends the way the way the thing unfolds and. It's not necessarily, there are no rules in any of this. It's all, we, we, in fact, that's what we're discussing, is about how far you can stretch your practice to include something else. Like, could we do an art project? You've probably done things that people think are art. Yeah, I mean, I get commissioned by major museums. photography so yeah. or communication or we're talking about all these But what things. about the specialists and the people who really, really focus in on their you know, um, well, their specialism, and then they become expert. Isn't that that's also a useful? I'm or is that not a good? of the expert. Uh, oh, there are so how many, like Michael Gove. There that are recently. so many as conservative uh, party experts <laughs> that we, okay. they're an expert in health one day, and then they're an expert in finance the next day. That's funny. So. I think that expert is a very volatile word. Okay, well, well let's, let's, unless anybody else feels that they'd like to challenge Nigel on, on experts. What, what, do you, what do you mean about ex experts as in well, experts what I meant in was, chair But we're talking about, um, yes, we're talking about uh, um, the value and maybe the benefits of being cross-disciplinary. Maybe not, let's not use the word polymath. Um, but then I was thinking, well, maybe if, if everybody's going to, or not everybody, if there's a lot of this going on, maybe you could have a niche where you absolutely only focus on one thing and you could become well, this like go-to person. Like a, like a surgeon. But within design, so maybe you only did rugs or you only did... And lighting people is probably... Like people, you do get lighting designers, don't you, who are just focusing yeah. on lighting, whether there's a value in that. I, but I suppose it depends, it depends where your, what your clients want of you. Because it, as it sounds like you're very driven by what you can, you know, wh where your clients take you. There, there are lots of specialists anyway, if I've understood your point. There are specialists, you know, product design field. in every field. And then there are architects and designers who, who um, encroach into those areas of specialism. And that can be successful or, and that might not be successful. Barbara Osborne is quite a good model. Yeah. Sorry, Nigel, to cut over. Because they've separated out their different sorts of businesses. So it's not all under one roof. They've got universal design and, and, then, and then the furniture people, rather than keeping it all under one. But anyway, sorry, Nigel, you were going to chip in there. Or if I well, I was going to say that you know, some companies may come to you and ask you to design in a material or uh, within a, frame, a, frame, a, a functional 
uh, um, set of limits that you're not familiar with, and that's why they want you to do it. You know, like when you went to Stoke and you started doing cups, yeah. for example, you'd never done a cup, probably. And that's what gave you, isn't it, what gave you the, the possibility of doing cups like other people hadn't done. Because, it, because, you, because as a designer, you intent, you, the, the, the approach is to sort of go within the project, whether you know whether you're an expert or not. And I think perhaps sometimes all the better for the fact that you haven't done a million cups before. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's um, maybe um, a false opposition um, in the sense that, like, when, when I'm asked what, do, what advice would I give students um, who are graduating now, I normally say that the most important thing is to find out what you are good at and what you actually enjoy doing and not what your peers value and the architect you know architecture and design they're very broad professions and there's a lot of peer pressure for what's kind of considered good at a given point in time you know back when i was a student it was everyone had to be like a young zaha you had to do parametric -y stuff or you had to work for <laughs> rem cool house which i did very stupidly um, what way stupidly it's just very unpleasant working environment um and uh, it teaches you terrible terrible ways of treating people and relationship to work but um you know you, you kind of push, get pushed, you know, like in a crowd, even if they're not saying it explicitly, you get pushed in a particular direction. And actually, you know, a lot of people really enjoy project management. A lot of people really enjoy drawing construction details. They enjoy technical drawing. Some people really enjoy doing the PR side of things or the office management side. Of, like the, all of these roles are just as important. And similarly in design, right, there's, everyone ha finds their own role. Somebody enjoys the 10,000 hours of making with wood in a carpentry shop. Another person really enjoys the project management and delivery and installation side of fabrication. You know, and then some people, you know, it's, it's glorified, I think, in the press, this sort of multidisciplinary role. Um, but I think only very few people actually enjoy it. And if you do, then you, you fulfill a role in the economy, in the design economy. So I don't really think it's an oppositional thing between experts and multidisciplinary people. I think what's called multidisciplinary is an actual role that just doesn't have a name. Okay. I wonder if... Ah, um, oh, good, there's a hand uh, waving. Um, not waving, exactly. More, more fists. Sort of, yeah. Um, <laughs> What's it attached to? <laughs> Hello, hands. Would, would, you, would, you, would you like... Uh, Rob, would you like people to say... Um, where, who they are, or Hello? no, no, don't, don't tell us, don't tell us, please. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Um, firstly, I I'm Steve. Um, I'm part of the Negroni Talks team, but um, I've got a question. Um, well, actually, a speculation and then a question. I would. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, in the times of mass production, during the 50s, 40s, post-war period, 40s, 50s, 60s, I would view furniture design as very much about, you know, producing lots and lots and lots of um, volume. Um, look at the, the, the Eames chairs, for example. And um, towards the end of the Eames career, and um, the, the, the kind of um, end of post-Fordist kind of economy, and then you've got a post-modernism or post-Fordist kind of movement in the 70s and 80s. You've got 
a different type of furniture that is perhaps suited to specific contexts and specific needs and specific projects. Now, I like what I've seen from the likes of Ron Arad's furniture, Nigel's furniture, Adam's work. Um, but there's, is, is, and here goes my question, it's like, is there a future beyond the kind of um, um, last 30 years of furniture design where you, we can sort of figure out if there is a new form of non-shitty furniture. And the, not the shitty furniture that Nigel mentioned before, I had the fortune of working with Tom Main at Morphosis and his chair was abysmal. It was horrible. It wasn't comfortable. It was overly designed. How much did it cost? It probably cost ages. I think they even did the prototype in Italy, you know, and it, all the way from Los Angeles. Um, but work had had a pleasure to work with Ron as well, and that was a completely different approach to furniture design. It was much more refreshing and and interesting, and 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 more in keeping with one aspect of that kind of um, DIY tactical kind of strategic action oriented type of um, design and architecture, which was manifest in his chair, um, which we all know of. Um, so the question is really to, to the three panelists, is like, where's the future of chair design and how important can it be? Who would like to pick that up? The future of chair design in, in, uh, in a nutshell. Apparently I've got my finger on the pulse, <laughs> according to Adam. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was saying earlier, I think there's a, there's a, a, a great piece of work to be done um, in um, connecting volume, procurement, and provenance. Um, so, you know, it sounds a bit utopian, but personally I'd love to see that, where there's much more um, um, knowledge over where stuff got you know who's designing what where it comes from how it gets to here and also more um uh, more expectation around the sustainability of that furniture you know claire you were talking about how many chairs get thrown away so i think um uh, that that would be a nice future that that's where work can be done because let's not forget there are millions and millions of chairs in the world that have been designed over you know fast sort of hundreds even thousands of years why are we still designing chairs i mean i think that's kind of or quite why, a good question why are chinese people still copying chairs and they will copy them more and more and more so chairs that are no, you know, have distinctive forms can be, are made and sold for 50 euros from China. And that's why so we need legislation here. I mean, I've just legislation had isn't going to be any good here if it doesn't extend to China. And is there any chance of that whatsoever? I so think that you could have legislation here which would identify where stuff was coming from. Well, I think there's lots of ways to get around that. But what I, what, what, what I want to say is that they, you, know, you can put certain sort of ethical restrictions on it, but in the end, it's about the mood of the time. I mean, just walking around this building, there's a lot of experiment in how to use waste materials, for example. So that would suggest that waste materials, whatever they are, uh, um, and they're mostly sort of from food or straw or kind of, you know, stuff that is thought of to be of no value. 
So that surely is an indicator of what might be. So I think there will be, very soon, it will be an extremely bad move to design a plastic chair. I would much rather design a chair that maybe looked like plastic, but it was made out of re reclaimed materials of one kind or another. But then there's a whole aesthetic set of the issues, which of course are beyond the ethical ones, because you can just go down the ethical path until you can't move. So, where is it where where those ethical f those ethical constraints can actually break out? And designers are like artists and musicians and other people are often on the point of wanting to break out. So, whatever the mainstream is, somebody's going to come along and do something that breaks the... And then people think, oh, yes, I'm going to follow that one. So they're, you know, like Zaha did. And then, you know, within 10 years, everybody's doing work that looks like Zaha. It's just the way things work. So the future is kind of... It's going to be multi-streamed, is what I say, <laughs> and hopefully less plastic. Adam, what do you want to say about the future? Um, just in terms of, I guess, this again, it's like super personal, but in terms of my expectations, I think, and, and interest, um, I would say, sorry, it's not stylistic, the answer, but um, we, we're, moving, we're moving into a sort of multipolar world. We're not, we're not moving into it. We're, our world is fracturing. Globalization is in reverse. Full steam ahead. Um, imports, materials are becoming much more expensive. Imports are becoming much more expensive, unreliable. International supply chains are broken. They're not going to be replaced um, because, you know, friendly countries are potentially going to be cut off from the international trade networks. There's a kind of full-scale movement towards a new international economic setup. And I think import replacement uh, is going to become much more important over the coming decade and decades, which means everything is going to be much, much more expensive. It's already happening now, but it's not happening with any positive consequences. And that means that um, com manufacturing is going to become or is already becoming viable again here if we also have materials sourced in the UK and in Scandinavian countries that we have hopefully reasonable trade agreements with when we toss out this nutcase government um, but that means that we're going to be designing things which are much more expensive there's going to be a much slower turn um, of the fashion cycle um, and we're going to be working more locally with materials which we are forced to be more careful about because they're just more expensive. And I, I kind of think that there's a lot of opportunity in there as well because that's the kind of design that I actually do anyway respond to more. Well, I think that, that, that point about the future of chairs and it being an ethical issue um, and you know, supply chain issue, that, that's all tied up. But I think there's another future of chairs which we haven't addressed yet, which is perhaps the elephant in the room, which is um, sitting is really bad for us. Well, the other elephant in the room is literally an elephant in the room. I'm sorry to raise this issue. <laughs> in the buildings I work on, we're having to put more and more thinking into the kind of weight that chairs can take. And in many spaces, we've had to take chairs out and replace them with sofas because, uh, you know, as we all know, over 60% of our, our population are obese and regular chairs just aren't doing the job anymore. Right, okay, that's quite interesting. I did, d is that something that the product designers... The elephant in the room, the obese... Uh, wow. Literally the 
Okay. Uh, they're, they're waddling. People waddle in. They just can't take the weight. Anyone captured that on? They just can't take the weight. So chairs are collapsing, and so right. our wastage is really gosh, not okay. great. I mean, I had I, I knew that was happening in other um, sort of. Uh, Parts I know that baby changing tables have had to be strengthened because babies have got bigger or something. Yeah, um, have, <laughs> yes. But but what about the idea then that uh, chairs are well perhaps sitting down is bad for us and uh, sitting is a new smoking. I don't know who came up with that, um, which I, I, sure I don't that's particularly hold, it, hold with. But uh, you know we're not burning off any calories sitting here. We might burn off a little bit by going that for your for your Negroni, but that's about it. But w what are you doing designing more chairs? You're killing us. You should, be designing, you should be designing out chairs. You should be designing a world where we don't sit down anymore. And then we won't need these big sofas that Naomi's having to specify. And we'll all be healthy. So what have you got to say so to your that? Your solution is just to never sit down. Sorry, sorry, Claire can, I come in? Claire, can I come in again? Sorry, I can't resist this one. Because um, I think chairs are ultimately social. Oh. Uh, and, and the reason I'm saying this is that my dad's got divorced about 25 years ago and he got, has no furniture in his, in his large living room. And um, somebody visited him and said, why, have you, why, Peter, do you have no furniture in your, your, your living room? He said, I don't like people and I don't want people to stay long. <laughs> Good now, idea. if he had some chairs, people would sit down and want to chat. It's a very social thing. Well, Japanese well, people sit on the floor, don't they? That, or on a, on a cushion. So a cushion can be a chair as well. And um, w uh, again, referring back to the talk we chair, uh, Grant chaired <laughs> the other night, where the uh, chap from... Oh, I can't find the quote here. No. Uh, sorry, I can't remember now. But he said that chairs bring people together... So uh, what you're saying, Steve, so perhaps chairs aren't all bad. Um, and of course, Ma Nelson Mandela said you, it's a piece, which again was quoted on Wednesday night, great weapon for peace is chairs because it brings people together. Sitting down, sitting down, so you've got to sit on a chair. But let, let's, let's not get down I'd this like chair. To, I'd like to do chairs that are just nice to look at. You could, but you only look at them standing up that or up. walking around them. Yeah, walking yeah, around That's them. fair enough. Then they but become a piece of sculpture, maybe. But they're still a chair because they uh, contain the idea of chairness. Yeah, They convey the thought that yeah. you could sit on it, but you'd say, no, I won't. I mm. can't no. for the sake of my health. That's what I'm thinking. But, but I feel we're going down a slight <laughs> rabbit hole which I've, I've, uh, of my own making. But shall we... I just wanted to see if there's anything else from the audience that, um, that anybody would like to ask or posit. No? Okay. Oh, come on. There must be somebody who's got a little <laughs> thought bouncing around in their brains that Who they'd like to, like to test. <laughs> like to design a chair who in this audience would like to design a chair yeah as adam says after this okay. no one <laughs> gosh well i think what we've concluded i can see people who have designed chairs by the way oh, but they're not admitting it now no. because we've worked out that they are a social <laughs> ill 
Yes, and we're going to set fire to all these chairs in here. You're making this. everyone fat and you're destroying the planet. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I hope you all feel very ashamed of yourselves. Gosh. And you're misogynistic. Oh, come on. I thought, no, well, there was somebody at the back. But, no. But, it, but, but, but we, other views are, are, are also welcome, so we're very happy to hear other views. No? Okay. I think we might wind up. I, yes, I did comment. say I did say posit posit a comment, but and I, did, I did suggest that. Any no. comments? <laughs> do, do, don't, we, we don't want to twist twist people's arm. No, <laughs> that's fine. Um, thank you very much to all three panelists: Adam, Nathaniel, Furman, Naomi Cleaver, Nigel Coates. I think we have perhaps exposed some of the um, values and issues with chairs and th their designers. Um, really good fun. Thank you all three. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks. Mixing it in architecture.